This is it, people. This is what you've been waiting for. This is Everyday Celebrity Podcast. The podcast for everyday people with everyday problems trying to find everyday solutions to accomplish everyday goals. Let's start the show. You, 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 welcome to another episode of Everyday Celebrity Podcast. Thank you for the thousands and thousands of people listening around the world. Shout out to all my fans in London and <laughs> Dubai. Uh, today, I wanted to sit down because there's a lot of shit going on in the world today. And I want to talk to someone who can give some insight on how to deal with that depression like people feeling sad about losing their jobs the covid people being depressed on not being able to go out it's driving people crazy um yeah all the racist stuff that's going on how donald trump has is basically giving a voice to of people who are racist but we're undercover racist but now they're like out in the world speaking freely and so we have a special guest and we're being joined by a everyday celebrity podcast veteran she's going to be co-hosting with me welcome back zola thank you thank you for having me <laughs> and the special guest today we have a doctor here and this guy is an actual well, I hope he's an actual doctor because I'm gonna be I'm gonna, I'm gonna look stupid. <laughs> doctor Anthony Mor was it Maurice or Maurice? Maurice works. Right, Maurice, you gotta like you can move, that, move the mic to you, like yeah. That work? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, so uh, doctor, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm chilling. How What's your uh, what is your um, title? Like your job title? Yeah, so I'm a mental health clinician right mm -hmm. now at Girls Inc. of Alameda. It's mm -hmm. a nonprofit agency uh, that contains a mental health clinic within that. Mm -hmm. Finishing up postdoc hours. I can give other credentials at this moment just to orientate. <laughs> so I graduated uh, with my doctorate in clinical psychology from California Institute of Integral Studies uh -huh. last year. It's like a grad school in Soma in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Um started teaching there i've been teaching there in the masters and the doctorate program human development and the addiction classes for the last year uh finishing up my time in my postdoc i'm actually going through termination right now with all my cases and all my families i finished there in a couple weeks and uh plans to take some time off after six years of grinding through grad school mm. uh return to my body insanity and then oh, start oh. Oh, so you can keep going, keep going. Uh, and then start a private practice virtually, probably. How many uh, years of schooling does it uh, take to get to where you are? Or when, you're, when, you're, when, you, when you finish everything, how many years of school would you, would you have completed? Uh, four years bachelor's, five years doctorate, so nine. Nine? And, and then another year of clinical hours to uh, finally get the license. Clinical hours is just basically like on-the-job training? Yeah. Yeah, so total for the degree, it's 7,000 hours uh -huh. unpaid work in the last six years mm. something like that yeah did you major in psychology for your bachelor's degree i did yes at arizona state university 
Okay, so I I have a theory that a lot of times people who major in psychology feel that they have something going on with themselves mentally. Oh, here, here it just comes. <laughs> I mean, it's a theory yeah. that I've heard. Um, do you think this applies to you? And if not, do you th- have you seen other people where you think this would apply? Yeah, it's a great idea. I think it's absolutely true <laughs> in one form or another. I think um, like when I became curious about things like psychology and philosophy when I was 16 and 17, I was just looking for a way out for whatever my life was, whatever I was experiencing at the time. So it's a, it's a quest to understand the other and myself simultaneously. It's a, it's a way to understand your own mind, right? In a way? Kind of, if that was 100% possible. Right. It's, it's not, of course. <laughs> yeah. The brain is a very, very, you know, intricate thing, very complex thing. A lot of people try to understand it and they can't. Um, what, what did you learn about the brain, your own brain? Um, well, we don't. It's like the neuroscience right now is still extremely primitive. Um, so there's like, say there's like trillions of neurons, the most we can do right now in terms of just the brain. And now what my curiosity and my interest in is not neuroscience per se, but more so the realm of subjective meaning and like identity and like the interior sort of of the self and how it arises in relation. So Mm -hmm. I study a lot of psychoanalysis and relational theory, things like that. My only qualm with neuroscience, I think too often the the human predicament gets reduced to these biological mechanisms in the brain. And so you can have a whole world of dynamics and suffering um, and somebody of power, right, with the proper credentials takes all of that and just says the cause is a malfunctioning neurotransmitter in your brain. You get a medication, it shuts down that portion of the, of the brain, and you go back to real life. But it feels so far removed um, from, like, what's actually happening. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's really interesting stuff. Um, I, I mean, I've always thought about it, about how our brain is almost just kind of like it's a machine, you know. And if you do kind of condense it all down to, well, it's just a mechanism that works to bring us, you know, from one place to the other for us to be able to understand, you know, what we're seeing a way for us just to perceive reality and live in this world. And then all our experiences are funneled in through that, you know, each person has their own unique print, you know, their own neurological path way, their neurological pathways are, they're all each unique, but in a way it's kind of, you know, it is what it is. Like you can't really change that. Mm. And it kind of reduces it to almost like a predeterministic way, you know, outlook. I'm going to let Jordan take over. <laughs> All right. So uh, explain to me. So you went to Arizona State, right? Mm-hmm. Are you from Arizona? I am born and raised. How was undergrad for you? Did a lot of drugs. Made a lot of bad decisions. Because mm-hmm. uh, Arizona State is like a number one party school in the country, right? It is, but, you know, my partying, <coughs> well, I might as well get juicy with my past now, right? Yeah, Just yeah. to spice things up. Yeah, well, um, I mean, well, I was going to give you a little, I was going to wait a little bit before I started talking about but 
we can get into it now. Yeah, I've had a direct experience with substance abuse and addiction and mm-hmm. all sorts of forms of sobriety and healing. When I was 21, it was heroin. And uh, You were addicted to heroin? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I lived in a trailer in, in Arizona. And shot up this was while you are in uh, college? Yeah, well, I dropped out eventually. Oh, okay. Um, because of the heroin addiction? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I was 21. I went into rehab and I met my first sponsor in the 12 step program. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. We're more similar than I thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, did you dabble with drugs and all that while you were in high school or did you, did it bust on the scene in college? Uh, it was definitely high school. It was just, uh, once I got to high school, you know, I was like, uh, really good at getting good grades and wrestling. Mm-hmm. And I, so I was able to maintain a really positive self image, but there's always something that goes wrong, you know, and all these feelings of insecurity, inadequacy, it's very easy to smoke a lot and drink a lot and take a lot of pills and yeah. whatever anybody has Yeah, had a lot of fun. And then I had a knee surgery when I was 17, I got prescribed opiates, uh, Percocet, not Oxycontin. Mm. the the good ones from back in the day <laughs> uh and then it was straight opiates for three years yeah yeah how does how, do, how does oxycontin make you feel like uh, i never done it before so i was just wondering kind of like heroin <laughs> i've never done heroin either it's like uh, <laughs> everyone listening like a stepping when you're really stressed out stepping into a warm bath yeah, it's like it, molasses, it, warm molasses being funneled you. down into you, just taking over. Yeah. No, let's not get you guys thinking about this shit again. <laughs> 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 All right, so you were in college. You went to college. Did you get uh, accepted to any other colleges besides Arizona? Uh, maybe. I knew I wanted to go to ASU. And then for graduate school, I knew that I did not want a university experience. Uh, I thought it was very mechanistic and ritualized. I was not interested in doing research. I was interested in doing direct clinical work. Mm. Um, and California Institute of Integral Studies was actually featured in a book by my favorite writer at the time, a guy named Ken Wilbur, who's a philosopher. And within this fictional book, he attends the school and listens to the lectures and makes fun of them, really. Uh, mm. So I found it through that. What was the name of the book? Uh, Boomeritis. Boomeritis? Yeah. Ken Wilbur is his name. So, um, did you, was that your intention off the jump to be studying psychology? I think so. I remember fantasizing about it when I was 17. What, what is it about psychology that interests you so much? That's a good question. Well, I found someone who I thought knew it. uh, Is it because... Well, this is what they say about all people who study psychology. You just want to fuck with people's minds and shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, all the craziest, the craziest people in the world were psychologists, right? Yeah. yeah, <laughs> Fucking, uh, yeah, yeah. The person who created, uh, who gave Hitler the idea of uh, killing all the Jews oh, wow. was a psychologist. Did you know that? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to be the one with all the, the crazy questions. The fucking, Damn. the person who uh, created... Uh, who started apart apartheid in South Africa? I think oh, he was a psychologist. That makes sense. Uh, I mean, there's some other like crazy motherfuckers who study psychology. Yeah. Well, we're psychologists, but yeah. But what was your reasoning? It was really from the. It was from finding Ken Wilber. It was from 
when I would read his stuff, it was a lot of, he would take Eastern spirituality and blend it with Western psychology. Mm. And he brought a lot of different ways of thinking together. And it just exploded my curiosity. I really wanted to study the human mind. Who am I? Mm-hmm. You know, this constant obsessive question of who am I and who are you? And how that looks. Did you learn a lot about yourself during your, during, uh, majoring in this? Like learning more? Yeah. Well, I had to go through my own. Uh, experience for me i'm a fan of psychoanalysis Mm. Uh, i study psychoanalysis just as a classical way of approaching speaking and listening uh and offering someone a you know a space to so i've had my own experience that i was in analysis for three years with my analysts and that was a terrifying difficult and valuable experience Mm. wow i bet that taught you a lot so, like, going through that, did you take some of, like, I don't know, his core practices into the way you practice psychology yeah. Yeah. today? Absolutely. Well, what were some of those tenets? Well, it's not the experience that I had isn't fully generalizable to what I can do with others. Uh because I was seeking specifically psychoanalysis, which is something that's like really, really intense for most people. Mm-hmm. It's different than regular therapy to a certain degree where he he wasn't like um, a friend or he wasn't an active person in the room who was sharing his opinion and thoughts. Right. And he would just set up the space for me to encounter my own truth as it yeah. flies away moment to moment. And I try to speak my heart out. Yeah, I've heard about psychoanalysis. Um, I think it's a really interesting practice. Um, Explain, explain, uh, I don't mean to interrupt you, but explain psychoanalysis. Like, what is it? Yeah. Because when uh, a lot of people, when they hear that, they'll probably be thinking like, oh, you're getting, oh, my parents are sending me to like gay camp to like try to get me from being a lesbian or something. And they're like putting wires on my head and electrocuting me. Yeah. Traditionally back in the, like a hundred years ago, it was used for just that. Oh, but yeah? oh, like a hundred so. years ago, it was seen as a, <laughs> I was just, I was just joking. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but all yeah, right. that is a real thing though. For uh-huh. sure. It used to be that way, uh-huh. but that's not, that's not caused by psychoanalysis. That's just, they thought homophobia was a malfunction. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right? But, what, so but they, what is psychoanalysis though? What right. Is, so you have this guy, Sigmund Freud, right? And this is how it started. He's a physician. He's a doctor mm-hmm. in Vienna, um, Austria. And it starts with these this group of women who are coming into the clinic and they can't move their limbs or they're having what he later calls hysterical problems, right? Mm-hmm. Something's going wrong with their body and all the physicians uh, can't figure it out. And he starts listening to them. Right. And something else happens when he begins listening to them and making them speak over and over and over is they start laying out their life stories. And after months and months and months, there's connections between their current symptoms and their like self as a person. Right. And at the time in the culture, you had to keep sexuality really repressed. So women's sexuality was repressed by society and by culture. And so they're having all these symptoms. So basically, he entered and opened up this sort of path. When you really, really listen to someone for a long amount of time, there's these other dimensions that come into play that you can play with. Like, why does someone, they'll tell you a story every single time and they'll go out and do something different 
you know, like mm. that part of it, it gets brought into the room. So eventually it's turned into a service that can be provided and manualized and ritualized. And that now there's rules and it's organized and people lay down on the couch and the golden rule is free association. So someone lays down on the couch and starts talking about all their problems and their suffering. And the golden rule is you just say whatever pops up into your mind. So you get these like, uh, these encounters between the doctor and the patient that last years of someone just speaking their heart out and all the stuff, their dreams, the slips, the things they accidentally say, everything takes on a sort of life of its own. And people have these really incredible experiences. It's like transformative. Mm. So the doctor does, does the free association and we'll just say a word or it's, no, the, it's person. the person. The okay. Person's okay. So, like, like someone has some crazy dream and they're describing it and this scene in their dream, suddenly they're reminded of this traumatic experience they had when they were young, something like a moment like that. So I, um, I'm sure you know about this phenomenon where, you know, and there's, there's been a lot of psychologists um, accused of implanting fake memories of trauma into their patients um, and there's this, there's this other kind of, uh, mechanism, um, of the mind called unconscious memory repression. Yeah. So do you believe that someone could recover traumatic events from, let's say when they were like zero to two years old? And, and then do you also think that there is kind of a misguided practice where some psychologists will, um, make inappropriate, you know, use inappropriate suggestive methods to sort of implant memories when someone's having problems or what, what's your views on all of that? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I think anyone, any psychologist runs the risk moment to moment of imposing their own meaning into the world of the patient or misinterpreting what's there or projecting the wish of their own. So there's always this potential for the, it really comes down, I think, to fluctuations of power. The person in power, right, to impose their own, whatever it is. And okay. it's it's a very human thing. I listen to kids, I'm a therapist for kids, and I have kids that are suicidal, that are depressed, and it's so tempting, moment to moment, for me to just jump in and be like, well, you should feel like this, or you should think like this, or you should do. Right. That or that's the reason. So there's that. And like, no, I don't think that there are actual psychologists who are profiting off of intentionally doing this thing. Right. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. Like it's not an intentional thing, but sometimes unintentionally they have maybe seen so much or they've seen so many cases that, you know, they make mistakes. They make mistakes. I think they're uh, potentially doing it on purpose because don't when you're a child psychologist and if you work at a high school or something for example mm -hmm. isn't it uh don't you get more money doesn't the school get money w with more kids or special ed kids so you have all these uh you have all these uh child psychologists who sees this kid you know, a five-year-old kid he has shit ton of energy and then all oh, the psychologist says oh yeah he, he's, he has add but all five-year-olds have shit ton of energy. You know what I'm yeah. saying? All five-year-olds are like, 
going like this on the fucking table and shit. Yeah. So the, ch- the child psychologist comes around and says, oh, I'm going to diagnose him as ADD. Now he's in the special education. Now the school gets more money for that student to provide special yeah. education. So there's a lot of psychologists out there who misdiagnose children. That's a big thing. And it's, uh, it's a big, it's, it's a big issue in, uh, for minority children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your, what's your views on that? Do you think that's true? Absolutely. I think, but we're talking about the issue of, uh, diagnosis, which mm-hmm. as you painted it, I think it's completely true. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that, like, for example, yes, psychologists overdiagnose and there's this problem with diagnosis just as a normal thing. To which we're speaking to but i don't know that for example it's because they're gonna get more funds right mm. it's just something that happens perpetually and i i can give an examples of this and i think tying it to underprivileged children especially is true a good example is uh, a young black man in a hospital who's having a psychotic break is much more likely to get diagnosed with or overdiagnosed. That's one population that's mm-hmm. just been shown to be overdiagnosed. Uh, people of color, children in schools are getting diagnosed with uh, uh, opposition, oppositional or conduct disorder. They're, they're more likely to be interpreted as having a combative issue with authority mm-hmm. than they are to have, say, an emotional regulation issue. So, I absolutely think that's happening. And like a good example is for me, I start, I get a case. It's the parents who bring in a kid. So you were, you work with children. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. I do direct therapy with the children and I do sessions with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just want to continue your story. Um, so the kid, there's something wrong with this kid, right? He has all these behavioral. Problems. So that's what the parents are thinking. That's what the parents. So immediately just at that level, some the kids experience is getting misinterpreted and painted as bad mm-hmm. so when they bring them in for therapy it comes with these undertones of make him behave make him conform fix this behavior and when you look at the behavior it's like uh, not to pull back to freud but the iceberg like the behavior represents a whole world of like suffering underneath and the only way this kid has to express or communicate is engaging in this one thing right so it, it runs deep. It runs beyond just the, even the, the trends with specifically different races or anything. And mm-hmm. It goes all the way just to set up with the parents and the kid. And the kid's always a problem to the family system. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, have you ever diagnosed, uh, I mean, you work with a lot of children. Are they mostly uh, minority children? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you? diagnose a lot of children with uh with shit yes uh, yeah and here's i have to in uh, order to do my work because right now for example medical mm-hmm. medical is the one who funds people's treatment right medical is like the the main insurance so in order for somebody who has medical to receive any type of services mm-hmm. they have to meet medical's criteria and correct and so medical is the one with the power who mm-hmm. determines the standards that somebody has to meet so i have to make sure that they these kids are diagnosed and that they qualify with something that gives us the funding in order for treat us to them. otherwise they treat. won't get the treatment exactly mm. go ahead 
So, you know, I had a, I kind of re put this question before. I mean, I know there's a lot of protocols, processes, methodologies that, you know, Girls Inc. probably uses. Um, every institution has their own protocols. Usually there's standard protocols that, you know, are like California protocols, San Francisco protocols, you know, Bay Area protocols. Um, are there certain protocols, for example, the one you just mentioned, that you think um, should be changed? And are, is there more than one? Yeah. Well, in this case, the, the regulating body is uh, Medi-Cal, right, for the criteria in order to do treatment. There's then there's sort of government type agencies that regulate things like licensing. So the board, the California Board of Psychology regulates licensure. So you have to abide by their rules and ways of practice in order to keep your license. Um, I don't know the, as a function, that's always kind of needs to be there. And I think there's always a way in which it's not going to fully capture the possibilities of what you could do. Right. So I don't think there's such thing as like a perfect set of codes in the first place. Of course. You know, so there's always this tension between spontaneity. Could you name a time when you think that a protocol or, you know, the kind of overall methodologies used in your line of work has actually hindered your progress with a patient? Yeah. Hmm. That's a tough one. Well, there's like a, there's a pressure that hinders it, which this pressure, um, like in the way I write a note has to abide by the standards. So just the language that I use to depict a child is already conforming to a preconceived uh, notion. So it's like a, a pressure in the in the room sometimes like if this kid's doing really healthy then i can't see him anymore so there's all mm -hmm. sorts of little mini pressures that sort of hover mm -hmm. around but have i felt that i've ever had an issue with the protocol that's caused damage not no not necessarily okay that's I'm good sure if I'm answering that question no i think no yeah that's what i was wondering i mean i just from my experience hearing from my mother, I mean, she's a psych nurse. It's a different, you know, area, but I know that there's all these protocols that are in place that sometimes kind of hinder the work you do. And of course you need to have order and you need to have things, you know, run smoothly and functionally. But let's say for example, like the 72 hour hold, there's certain people who are very dangerous and, you know, and then they're not able to get, you know, the services they need, because, you know, they're only able to be in there for three days or just generally like yeah. money is an issue. So, I mean, not just like, you know, in, in a, uh, like, a you know, small way, but like in a larger grand scale kind of way, like, you know, the, the fun, how funding is distributed, what happened, like, you know, other treatment plans they can get, how, you know, that all of that works. Yeah. I've, I've heard like, you know, I've heard complaints from my mother's end about how that all works. So I was just wondering yeah. what, what you thought about that or. I get like one of the lessons I learned in the past couple of years working for this clinic, my supervisor often talks about, I have to think of myself as a limited resource. 
So the, the demand for services is larger than the supply of services. And so there's immediately this miss. That means, so like if we were to create services for a given population, it's from the beginning, not going to be enough. Mm. So I have to manage that with my caseload. Yeah. Because the line for people that are suffering to get in the door is always going to be long. You know, so there's not enough, maybe not enough resources or especially not for public mental health. Yeah. So. Do you have uh, siblings? I do. I have a younger sister named Natalie. How young? Uh, four years younger than me. How old are you? I'm 30. Your parents still uh, married? They are. Yeah. They're still in uh, Arizona? Yeah. They, they have a little camper. They take her out and they're living the high life. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a problem child? Uh, yeah. I was the... I was the first son of my father. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of the attention, a lot of the praise. Mm-hmm. Caused a lot of problems. Once I got to high school, that's when it started to... What were you like in high school? Well, right before high school, I was like a nervous wreck. Little kid, shortest, youngest in my grade. Really, really low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And then I got to high school and I joined wrestling. Mm-hmm. And immediately, I got like a leatherman jacket. So I had to like, I, I got to create a, an alter ego. That was yeah. like, I'm the shit. I'm powerful. I'm cool. Were you like a star athlete? Yeah, I was like multiple captain. Yeah. Yeah. So did, you get any, did you get any colleges looking at you for wrestling? No, I didn't do college. I didn't do college wrestling. Okay. All right. So you uh, out there, Arizona, Arizona State, right? Out there, Arizona State, where did you uh, explain your life after Arizona State? Yeah, well, I went to rehab when I was 21. Oh, yeah? Uh, dropped out of school. Uh, um, was it after freshman year or what? sophomore year? Uh, well, I transferred with an associate. I didn't I didn't do, like, the live-in campus. I went to, like, a satellite campus. Mm-hmm. I, was a, I was a heroin addict by the time I got to ASU. So I was never into the college scene, per se. Mm. Was heroin, like, real easy to get in? Yeah, in her- in yeah it's cheap. It's coming up from Mexico, black tar heroin. How long have you been sober? Off of heroin? Uh, <laughs> nine years. <laughs> I mean, do you, I mean. How, I, how, how long have you been clean <laughs> off of, I mean, have there ever I mean, been other s- drugs in your, yeah. you know, periphery? Like you still do drugs? Yeah, I mean, fun yeah. recreational-ish. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, your employer is not listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> So you just you just gave up heroin? No, I got I I. Oh, you still do heroin? No, oh. I got one hundred percent sober oh. for a long time, for many years, mm. and then I had very different experiences, and now that is no longer my uh, truth or home. Was it easy to to stop? No, it was like dying. <laughs> 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 it was like dying. It was like saying goodbye to everything, uh, all comfort, all sanity, everything. You did know. your parents know you were addicted? No, I was able to maintain wow. the image for a while, but then it, then I I had a breakdown. My dad found me like late at night in the backyard, and I started crying. He was like, "What's wrong?" I was like, "I'm a heroin addict." Mm. It was pretty intense. And how was uh? How did he take it? He uh, he took it well. Or were your parents the ones who put you in rehab? Yeah, 
they were immediately like, don't worry, we'll do anything. I'm so, very lucky. So when you went to rehab, do you think rehab uh, is a reason? Because, you know, a lot of people go to rehab and it's basically like going to like a, a hotel. Yeah, yeah. Or a resort like or something. It doesn't, days, yeah. You, you move yeah. on. And they're crazy rehab. expensive and like you don't, they, I mean, you, you once you get out, you, you're doing a drug again within like two weeks. So do you think um, your rehab was beneficial? My experience was, but it wasn't dependent on the rehab itself mm-hmm. or I went to a really shitty rehab, <laughs> like in the middle of downtown, really low cost, like stained beds. And like, it was pretty, it was pretty gross, but I had an experience there. I mean, if we listen to AA, they claim, you know, a spiritual awakening is something that describes what's necessary. Uh, some sort of pivot. I had that experience in rehab specifically I, with a guy, it's a kind of a funny story because he would come in with the 12 step meetings and he would hold the big book like a Bible. He was a skinny, goofy white guy with like khaki shorts. And mm. I hated him. I thought he was a huge douchebag. Uh, <laughs> and then he comes in and he said something one day, I pray every single day to be on the front lines of the battle of good and evil, to go to the most sordid spot on the entire planet. That's what he said. That's what he said to do God's work. And suddenly, those be the craziest motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, you go to their house, you look in that closet, they got fucking pictures of little girls and shit. <laughs> but anyway, keep going, keep going. <laughs> I like that joke. I like it. It's like the more good we try to be, the, exactly. The worse Especially if you're like yeah. all, all, if all you're about is like God, this, God, that. Yeah, it's like, like Jekyll and Hyde. You know. Yeah. That's that's why I am where I am. But yeah, finish, finish your story. Anyway, so I found somebody who looked like this perfect image of this like spiritual guru that I had always, I had found in my reading while I was 16, 17, these bodhisattvas, right? The legend of someone who helps the world. Mm-hmm. And that's what it looked like for me at that moment. At that moment, it was worth devoting my life to. It was mm-hmm. worth living. And then that was like the reason for living for a very long time. So you continued with AA? After you got a rehab. Yeah. yeah. It's like kind of like the only path I've heard. I mean, I'm an AA. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the only. So You're an you AA do, now? Yeah, I'm an AA uh. now. So you do like nine. Did you do the 90 meetings in 90 days? I did. And I you did. continued Eight on. Eight years. Eight years of meetings. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. That's that's actually that's a really interesting origin story for going into psychology. So, d- would you want to work with that population in the future with addicts? And I mean, I know from so you must have the experience on both sides. Like I have the experience where a lot of um, medical professionals don't trust me, you know, because a lot of you know psychiatrists and psychologists they don't trust addicts. Mm-hmm. You know, they always think you have like a supply somewhere. Or, you know, that you stockpile your medications or whatever it is. Um, I'm on Suboxone at the moment. So, like, you know, this is actually a question I really wanted to ask is that do you think there's a way to make it so that medical professionals are more trusting of their patients when those patients are addicts and alcoholics? Or do you think there will always be this kind of... um, like oppositional, you know, feeling between the two. Yeah. It's a great question. The, uh, my question would be the oppositional feeling between the two is the doctor, the one who's solely responsible 
for that? For a project, are they projecting like a paranoia? Well, I think, you know, when you have like hundreds of patients and many of them, I mean, there's like a 5% success rate in rehabs. So most addicts relapse. So when you're used to that and you have hundreds of patients and let's say maybe let's say 10% of those patients actually make it, why wouldn't you be distrustful? But what protocols could you put in place so that, you know, the patients feel like they're being heard and are trusted when they're putting in the work to get sober? Yeah. These are good questions. I feel like the they fit under the broader question of how do we de-stigmatize addiction yeah. and humanize addicts yeah. right? and all the ways in which the, the structure, the clinic, we can see how they're dehumanized even in the protocols. Yeah. You know, it's a really big question. At the same token, I'm sitting here. I'm 20 years old. I'm going to snap everything out of that cabinet. You know, yeah. <laughs> as a former addict, that's a score right there, you know? Yeah. So the, there's a really good question. So I teach this class right in the master's program, the addictions class, and it's uh, California Institute of Integral Studies, really good at trying to integrate these various perspectives. So what I do for the class is uh, each section is a different perspective from the purely clinical to harm reduction to spiritual to 12 steps to pharmacological to other things and one of the one of the really good questions that we play with is at what point should society intervene and set a limit because on the one hand going to just the harm reduction side which is like a very maternal unconditional loving space right mm-hmm which it attempts to create in relation to the addict to sort of reduce trauma. Right. 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 Um, and yet this acting out of using the drugs still persists even within the most ideal environment. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And on the other side of the spectrum, if we're just thinking about like society as the harsh father that just chops right. down the hand and it incarcerates and says, no, that doesn't work so much either. So, at what point should society intervene in the life of the addict? Is it is it when they break the law, or should it be before? Is that yeah, kind of the? Question? I don't know. I don't know, but it's a question that if you had to make up the whole, mm-hmm. I don't know the, the answer. So I know. I'm like I'm trying to push it out of you. I'm like, tell me how you would do it yeah, if you control yeah, this whole yeah. system. But no, I mean they're hard questions, and they're you know they're worth thinking. You haven't about. noticed she. She hates uh, psychologists. I don't hate psychologists. She has a she has a she has a thing about psychologists. <laughs> I, I don't hate psychologists. I think that you know psychologists. You know, a lot of them go into the field trying to treat themselves. Um, I think that along the way, I mean, I think there's some really good psychologists. I think there's you know not very good psychologists. Like I was talking about, there's like projection, but we need psychologists. You know, we need mental health professionals. That's, you know, widely needed. But, um, but yeah, I, I do have a distrust of psychologists generally. Yeah. But it's interesting meeting someone who has been on the other side. I mean, you have been treated for, you know, your own psychological. Yeah, I've been a patient. I've been locked in rooms and hospital exactly. gowns and socks. Yeah, and exactly. I've, I've spent the night on the chair with the leather straps over oh, it God. and in the closet. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, so 
I feel kind of like, you know, getting to know your story is very, it's good for me. I'm like, you know, you're, you're a full person and there's a reason why you went into this. Wait, 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 wait. Let's get into this strap to the bed shit. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. What, uh, <laughs> tell me about that. What happened? Yeah, well, so I'm, I'm 21 years old. And I'm incredibly sheltered and privileged white kid who's addicted mm. to heroin and never known anything like much outside of the middle class neighborhood. And uh, I go to a detox facility, which is a 14, 15 day lockdown facility. They also put people on 5250s in there, meaning mm. people on extended. suicide. On yes. extended, yeah. So I'm given a, a gown and hospital socks. I have the. Experience. Were you on a fifty one? Uh, fifty six? No, I was just there withdrawing from heroin. So okay, it was just like detox. It, it's humiliating. All of your power is stripped away. You realize you can't function as a normal person in society, and you have to be locked up. And uh, I got there, and my my roommate was schizophrenic, and he would sit up on the bed in the middle of the night and start screaming and hearing voices. Oh God! Mm. And he would like hover, and I'd be sleeping. They put you in a room uh, with someone like that. Yeah, I've heard about I've heard those horror stories. That's why I didn't. Because I thought I thought uh, <laughs> I thought when uh, people are like that, they're like housed alone. Well, that's what they do in like the jails. Mm-mm. No, they're just okay. I, I was fifty one fifty, and they there's no like limit. There's no like you know they don't lock you in your own little room. You're like right next to the rest of the populace, and 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 you know the people are the medical personnel that are coming and going. So. You know, by the time I sobered up, that's why I was in there because I, you know, was making bad decisions and, um, you know, suicidal ideation, all of that. And I ended up there. And as soon as I sobered up, I'm like, I shouldn't be here. And, um, and there's people who are actually like, you know, crazy. Like they have like severe, you know, um, psychological issues. And this one woman like comes over to me and she's like talking to me and she's like, well, why am I here? Like, what are they doing to us? What are they doing? Like, you know, and she starts getting more and more aggressive. And I'm like, if this lady decided kind of bigger woman, I'm like, if she decides to punch me in the face right now, like their reactionary time is going to be very delayed, yeah. you know, getting her off of me. Yeah. So yeah, they don't. Yeah. But go on with your story. I want to hear more about yeah. how well, that went. Well, the first, and then, so he was having a psychotic break and there was like five men in the room holding him down. So I decided to sleep in the closet. And then my next roommate in walks in this 300 pound giant white bald dude with Nazi tattoos. Oh, and he's like, well, I'm like, how you doing, man? He's like, it's uh, <laughs> like, well, I'm having voices. I'm keep hearing voices. Tell me to kill someone. But other than that's that, what he told you. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, cool. My name's Anthony. You know what? I'm, I think I'm going to just going to go crash in there for tonight. I brought my little blanket and slept in the, <laughs> the closet again. <laughs> <laughs> So how did you end up in the in the in the chair strapped up? Well, that that's the only chair in the closet. That's I wasn't strapped up. Oh. I was just like pathetically curled in a ball on oh. top of the chair. Oh, okay. You okay. know, rocking myself to sleep in the middle. When did when did, what what was the turning point where you realized okay, well, I need to fucking make a life change? Yeah. Um. Well, it was when I told my parents. But I mean, experiencing that feeling happened all day, every day, mm-hmm. and everything I did would just barely keep it at bay. So when you told your parents, was it the was it the the when you saw their uh, their faces and like the disappointment in their face, was that part of the reason? 
letting your parents down or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. Just being a failure. Just, yeah. Does your sister uh, dabble with the drugs like no. you did? No. No, my sister is straight as, as an arrow. Okay. She's the good one. <laughs> okay. Did you ever have people disassociate from you? Absolutely. Like I, yeah. My best friend who I just spent an awesome night with a couple nights ago for a few years, he wouldn't talk to me. Yeah. He came and got, and got all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like when people think that, you know, with heroin, with fentanyl, with a lot of opiates, people kind of see you as a lost cause at that point. Yeah. Like you're going to die, you know? So I know that, like, for me, that was a big reason to stop. Was that, like, a big reason for you to stop seeing people disassociate from you and seeing people ready for you to drop dead? I... I don't know. I felt the maximum amount of disgust and hate for myself. Like I didn't need my friends to ditch me in order to to know how big of a piece of shit I was at the moment, you know? So yeah. I definitely had my own version of this type of experience of just pure shame. Yeah. And just desperately seeking to not feel that for a moment. Yeah. I want to get off this drug shit. Um <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Ex- uh, explain to me what is girls inc what like what what do they do there yeah so it's like a giant nationwide uh non-profit organization they do all sorts of stuff specifically it started 60 years ago i think in california in like some old grandma's home where she just got a bunch of girls together and like babysat them and did cool stuff mm. so it's like a non-profit for girls empowerment and like family work so the whole agency does a lot of like after school programs. Uh, they work with a lot of minority populations specifically in the East Bay. And then within that whole thing, there's like a little clinic, mental health clinic where uh, I work. And what do you do for them? Mental health uh, clinician or therapist another, or psychologist. Those are all usable terms. So does, you're just like... Uh... I mean, when you you say your title, but do you what uh, what actually do you do? Therapy. Therapy. Yeah. Okay. Right now, it's all virtual with mm. family. So I have a set amount of cases that I organize sessions for, and mm. it's all therapy. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had a case where uh, that hits you real close to home more than usual? Yeah, all the time, man. <laughs> it's, it's like. Uh, Listening to people suffer, it's like falling in love with them, wishing you could do something to help them and just bearing witness, mm-hmm. you know, and yet watching something really beautiful happen if you're lucky, you know. Yeah. Uh, but if these people are alive inside of me everywhere I go, saying goodbye is very difficult. Is it hard to, let's say you're like, you're hearing a story, a, little, a girl calls you, oh, she's trying to get over being like raped or something. And she has like this crazy traumatic, traumatic story. Is it hard to, okay, well, now that this session is over, I got to go on to the next session. Is it so basically what I'm saying? Is it hard to just like, okay, after this session is over to forget about that and then just give all your energy into this next session and hear this next sob story and then, uh, this hour is over and then I go to, yes. to another person. Yes, it's very difficult. I feel it in my body. I get some sessions will just like, I'll just, I have like these little rituals, right? They're like stuff I have to do to get rid of it, like go on walks or like chain smoke cigarettes or go outside or 
do something that contains it. But usually after work, I just walk and let my mind circle around all of it and just let it go. And sometimes I'll cry. Sometimes I'll. Yeah, that's another. That's another uh, question. Where do like you're hearing all this shit, like negative stuff, negative stuff all the time. Where what do psychologists do to get therapy, or do they just see other psychologists? <laughs> that's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, if you're if you're a psychologist or in a, and you're doing therapy, I I would feel like okay, I already know the tricks of this therapist because I do it. So, yeah. do you feel like going to a therapist if you're a therapist is going to even help you? Yes, because suffering isn't because of a lack of knowledge. There's no such thing as like a perfect amount of self knowledge that you will then not suffer. So it doesn't like matter what you know intellectually mm-hmm. about yourself. That's like not quite the massive solution. So there's also just as a practice, just interpersonal speaking your truth, just as a, like a meditation practice, something you do every single day that it's like a vehicle. So I look at it, I look at it like that. So ongoing personal work must happen alongside. Otherwise it's a recipe for disaster, I think. So what's one of, I was, I was asking this before, what's one of the craziest cases you've ever had that you can divulge? And again, like no names, not, you don't need to give any specifics that would give away personal information, but like the craziest outlier where you were just like, whoa, this is an insane story or an insane case. Well, I definitely have like specifically one of those that has served as like, my first encounter with like the tragedy of being human, you know, per se. Um, After I graduated my bachelor's, I got sober a year and went back, finished my bachelor's. And then I got a job working at this clinic in Arizona. Um, I was like the, the front line, like mental health worker. I wasn't like a clinician. Uh, it was a lockdown facility for adolescents who were the proper way to say it is who had behavioral and sexual problems. They were all convicted of some form of sexual assault against a minor. And this was their rehab that they were sentenced to by the courts. And if they were able to complete this rehabilitation program, they wouldn't have to register as sex offenders when they're adults. Okay. So it's a population of 11 to 17 year olds who have all had, this is the extreme form of behavioral issues and to the point, like uh, a lot of those kids were convicted of violent, violently raping other children. So Uh, which particular case? So there's this case. So it was also working. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty juicy just for the start. Um, Like we had, I, I worked with kids who were like, handcuffed to a bathroom stall for 10 months and raped or like locked in their trunk, stuff like that. And, uh, so we had this kid, uh, this, he was 16. Uh, I'm going to call him K. Uh, he was big. He was bigger than all the other kids, African American boy, tall. He was kind of like, uh, he had this swagger about him. Like, uh, he tried to be cool. He was like immediately different than everyone because he wouldn't conform and do any of the activities. He would always like immediately start stealing stuff. And uh, it was it was scarcity behaviors, meaning he's used to starving. Right. You know, it's right. not it's not like intentional disruptive behavior. It's self it's protective. Right. But 
So anyway, so the story is um, he had an older brother and these two brothers were raised by their father and their father was pretty tyrannical. And uh, the father would beat them severely, like handcuff them, throw them in the trunk and then beat them. And one day the father went after the younger brother, my kid, Kay, and his older brother stepped in to try to protect him. And the father beat him so bad. His older brother like went limp, went down, and for days couldn't move. He was like throwing up black oh stuff, God. and the, the father dumped him at the hospital, and the kid had permanent brain damage. Jesus. Uh, so he now lived in a wheelchair, and he couldn't move his body. He couldn't. They thought he wasn't there. Um, so my my kid Kay, he gets. He does some crazy things. I think he held like a knife to some little kid's throat. He was engaging in sexual behaviors that he probably learned from his father or whatever. And uh, so he gets arrested. He comes into rehab and we keep trying to take care of him. He immediately puts on a hundred pounds. This kid was like homeless, like drinking from hoses, eating bugs and stuff. Oh my God. Um, and I would, he was my primary kid. So I would spend the whole day with him. I would wake him up. I would walk through the halls. I would do all these behavioral programs with him. He was always super rowdy. We had it so much fun. He was like the first kid that was like, he did the craziest shit I could ever imagine, but I just like loved him. And it was yeah. like, I wanted everything to help this kid. Everything. He was like, and his father was going to court on trial while he was in our placement. And we were preparing this kid to sit on a stand and testify against his father. Um, and the trial happened and his father walked free. Oh, and uh, two weeks later, this kid had a meltdown and beat the crap out of some other kid. And we went on a four hour escapade with him, destroying everything. And it ends with me holding his face and us holding him down as we're calling the cops. Cause we have to be, this kid is like, like he intentionally provoked everything and was sent to jail. And I kept, I kept racking my mind because it was so, it was so terrible to think this kid created this and did this on purpose because of the pain he was experiencing. Yeah. And there's nothing that I could do. And why would he do that? It was just, so he went off to jail. I never saw him again. I spent the next years in jail. Man. <sighs> And that's that's a really sad story. I mean, just perpetuated violence and probably sexual assault and what that'll do to somebody. And, you know, who knows what happened to the father, you know, what when he was a kid that made him act out like that. Yeah. Too, you know. So I mean, I'm sure you think about that kid. What do you like now when you think about that case? Do you, I mean, there's not really much you could have done, right? Do you ever go back and think about what you would have done differently? Not that there was anything wrong that you did, but do you ever like kind of, I mean, it's such a, this is such a crazy case. Like, do you ever comb through and think about other measures you might've wanted to take now that you're older and more experienced? Or do you ever think about this case when you're looking at, you know, a, a little kid now in, in the area that you work and kind of yeah. you know apply what you know from that to new cases good question i i think about what i wish i would have said in the final moments to him i i followed him around for four hours trying to talk him down yeah so um i also think like what i derive from that is that 
the this acting out has a meaning and it is contains value and so my yeah. function is to allow someone to try to articulate and try to put something in words that they're experiencing viscerally or enacting perpetually right so you can kind of break that cycle because if they can maybe put into words what they're feeling instead of just you know you going to violence or destruction or self destruction i mean that's what he was basically doing right i mean yeah. he was destructing things around him but he knew you know that he was self destructing in the process yeah another interpretation is that he made his world safer by putting himself behind bars because it's a cold unsafe world when your father gets to walk free after that and so he was creating something that was lacking from the world and his father which is containment and safety are you uh are you depressed? Depressed. Depends on what I think about. When I think about politics. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? In the world today, how can you not be? Have you been diagnosed with depression at any point of your life? No. No. I, yeah. But I mean I could be like I I have inside of me there's a low position mm-hmm. that I sometimes occupy from time to time, but I'm I have more anxiety I think than depression. I'm more kind of mm-hmm. high strung than I am. So you said the way you uh, deal with uh, yeah, your, the troubles of work, uh, you go on walks, you say, and you cry? Yeah, I try to just be with... You can make yourself cry just like... No, oh. <laughs> no it's rare. <laughs> Will, Smith, you know, Will Smith is the only one I know who could do that shit. <laughs> My friend did it pretty well in sixth grade when he wanted to get away with something. Oh, oh God, I hated those kids so much. <laughs> yeah. The ones who can cry on demand. Yeah. She did this to me. I would get that uh, with this one girl I, all the time. I often compartmentalize. Mm. Like this is, I'm used to it by now. It's easy for like I let when I really want to process it, I'll be with it, take mm-hmm. a bath, go on a walk, just let my mind obsess about it. Um, do you get uh, do you only work with kids and teenagers? So? No, that's just this placement. I've worked with I've worked in the jails. I've worked in rehabs. I've worked uh, in a lot of different places. Do you uh, is there like a big rise of people that you talk to? um suffering from depression because of uh, the current state of the economy? I think so. Mm -hmm. I think anxiety, too. I think uh, COVID's making a lot of people anxious. There's Mm -hmm. this sudden unknown element of Mm -hmm. every social encounter. Mm -hmm. That's Mm anxiety-provoking. There's also a huge loss of just being with people. Yeah. Loneliness. Another question I wanted to ask you. How do you feel... Well, what's your views on like medicine? What kind of medicine? Just medicine, period. Like, like, like Tylenol, like, like, yeah, you know, like, when, you know, the, the, the pills that you got prescribed when you got in an accident or whatever. Do you think, uh, let's say, do you think the medical field is really there to, well, not the medical field, what's the field that handles pharmaceutical? Pharmaceutical. Do you think pharmaceutical companies are really here to, to cure you? Or to keep or to keep you sick so they can stay in business because if everyone if everyone gets cured like they would go out of business right it's common sense so I feel like the pharmaceutical companies are here to like they they know you're gonna get uh they they know you're gonna get fucking addicted to those pain pills 
Like they know, uh, uh, you have ADD. Oh, let's, let's give them these pills instead of why don't you put them in sports? Take them out. Let's right, give well, them some exercise well, or change yeah. his diet. Like, for ADHD, oh, no, we're, no, yeah. we're just going to give you some pills to take. Like, yeah, well, absolutely. for ADHD, there's like speed and then there's other kinds of medications that they're finding now. But they had the research for that way yeah. before. Yeah. But, you know, they're putting people on speed. So, yeah. I mean, I think that, that's a hard question, but that's for you, my friend. Yeah, so do you think... Uh, <laughs> Do you think, like, the pharmaceutical companies, the medical field is there to really help people or to keep you coming back and wanting more? It's a great question. I think it's, well, I think it's mixed. Because I think there's good things. When we say, so if we just limit our conversation to just mental illness pharmaceuticals, Mm -hmm. um, Medication helps a lot of people and there are a lot of people who are willing to take the the bad side of it because the good side of it helps them. There's a lot of people on long-term medication that are avid are advocates of that and believe that their life is improved because of it. So a, a good example, one example is addiction medications, methadone, suboxone, subutex. Are they just replacement drugs? Are you still addicted? Or does the person, are they allowed to experience an increased quality of life? Is that worth it? Mm-hmm. We can bring the same questions to medication for psychosis, which like what happens is they know, and this is back to my original comments on how primitive neuroscience really is. They know that this whatever region is the one that produces the delusions. They know that when this re- region is reduced in functioning the person doesn't have delusions so they create medication it's essentially a sledgehammer to brain functioning it just it's like reducing the function of a computer yeah so the person is kind of looks like a zombie there's this weird polarity between is it making them a zombie or is it helping them and there's always sort of both at play Mm -hmm. and then the question becomes who's the ultimate judge of whether or not that's right we have to talk to the person to see if it's because some people take psychotic medication and one person might think they look like a zombie but they're they're experiencing a real life that they wouldn't be able they wouldn't be able to function without it so i have a friend and she's manic depressive and she hurts other people when she goes through episodes i mean destruction i mean violence all of it you know um and but she doesn't want to take you know psychoactive medications she doesn't want to take librium she doesn't want to take any of it because she feels like she's doled down she doesn't have those high highs and those low lows because those high highs a lot of creative people like having that when they have manic depression you know like Mm -hmm. you're able to like read three books write a book study (laughs) a language like you know start an art how did you learn french in two days yeah exactly it's like these people they're like wow like i have superpowers when i'm having my highest of highs but when they're at their lowest of lows or sometimes even at the peak of the highest of high that's when all of a sudden you know the wreckage starts do you think that you know it should be mandatory for people like that to take medication for the greater good for the rest of humanity someone that they might end up you know punching in the street or do you think that it should be really you know the person's choice and then they can end up going to jail if they want 
These are good questions. <laughs> what do you think? What, just imagine on Facebook if Donald Trump came out and said, we're going to force people to take medication. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they just said that. Basically, they said that when the... Uh, when the COVID, uh, they say they have a COVID treatment and, and everyone is required to take it. I mean, like, I feel like I'm more okay with that given it's a pandemic and it's, uh, it's not like. But how can you force people to take a vaccine? To inject themselves, to, to inject something in their bodies? How can the government force well, you to do that? Because the vaccine d- doesn't work if a certain population doesn't take it, right? That's how vaccines work. If some people don't take it, Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't work for everybody. You're gonna take it. The va- I, mean, I mean, Donald Trump doesn't he like? Didn't no, 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 he, like, no, no, no. Don't, don't. Are you going to take the vaccine? Yes if, or no? If there's a vaccine, and if like you know, actual doctors say like Doctor Fucci or we Fauci. we already have a bunch of vaccines in our bodies. We already right? have a bunch. We already have a whole bunch of back- vaccines. If are vaccine, you going to take the vaccine? If, yes okay, or no? If it is proven. To, to be a vaccine for COVID-19, yeah, I'll take the vaccine. As long as Donald Trump doesn't tell me to do it. <laughs> and Donald Trump, because remember how he said there was this vaccine and he was like, we know that there's this vaccine that might work and, you know, da-da-da-da-da, and it turned out that there's, like, no scientific evidence that it could work at all. I need scientific evidence to show that mm-hmm. it's going to work. So if like Kaiser is like, we have all this evidence, you can read up on it. There's studies, there's trials. You need to have clinical trials. You need to have, you know, a body of research to show that a vaccine works. If I see that proof, then I'll take the vaccine. But if Donald Trump is like, there's this medication, what was it for anyway? He said there was a vaccine. He was like, it's a medication for something. No, he was talking about chloro- chlorophene yeah, or some shit like that. Yeah. Yeah, and he was like, this will work, and like all the yeah. doctors... Well, like, the no, motherfucker said, inject that. yourself with bleach, so you, you shouldn't listen to nothing he says. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, that's why, I don't know about... That. Well, if, if you're stupid enough to inject yourself <laughs> with bleach, then that's your fault. Yeah, no. So, like, I wouldn't listen to what you know, Donald Trump has to say. He's not a doctor, but if, a, if an actual doctor... Or my, you know, position. Well, when people, when Donald Trump says that, people think that doctors are telling Donald Trump to say that. So they're like, okay, well, they're just going to listen. But the average person doesn't, is not going to listen. You, you got to be a dumb motherfucker to, to, to oh, Donald Trump says you need to inject yourself with bleach and the bleach will kill it. And if you're stupid enough to go and do that, then you deserve whatever it's like the idea happens. Just, if you just, you know, when you start to get sick, drink like two, you know, two handles of vodka and it'll kill the illness i mean that's mm. also a belief too but it'll probably just give you alcohol poisoning yeah you know so. all right so doctor um you um you said you wanted to start your own private practice uh in the future right yeah well, i mean that just means i get to see my own patients mm. and what would you me. want that population to be what would that look like would you do psychoanalysis what kind yeah. of pillows would you use <laughs> That's a great question. Well, we're in the virtual age starting now. Uh, Looks like the future is all, you know, through the computer screen these days. It's probably going to take place just like that. I see my patients now through video or on the phone. That works well. Okay. Mm. So even even if we get out of this virtual age, would you still use that as a method? Or do you think it's good to be face-to-face for therapy? A lot of people have a lot of different opinions with this. I think if the person is used to it or they prefer it or they want it, there's, they're not losing anything compared to real face to face. 
but a lot of people just crave the face-to-face. I think this is going to stay the norm moving forward. I mean, it's not like COVID really? is going to disappear. You enjoy you do, you enjoy the the Zoom meetings more than face-to-face. I mean, I hate Zoom, but there's something about being able to work from home from your own space. Patients like it; they don't have to drive places. That's true. Are you one of those doctors who? We're we're I'm watching you on the Zoom, and then oh. He has a nice suit on. Then when you turn the zoom off, you stand up. You in your boxers? <laughs> Do I wear sweatpants in some of my <laughs> zoom sessions? Possibly. Because uh. <laughs> you know, you a lot, a lot of these motherfucking medical professionals, people on zoom. I, they oh, I got a tie and shirt on. As soon as they click off, they stand up. They're like in boxers and like. Yeah, I've seen that. Or in, in business meetings, yeah, people, yeah, yeah. you know, you're, dre- you're dressed up from the from the waist on. up. I just don't try to stand up. <laughs> <laughs> so how long have you been working at, uh, was it Girls Inc.? Yeah, yeah Girls Two Inc. years now. Two years? Yeah, I'm done in two weeks. Wow. Oh, so this is just for the hours. That's why you're working there? That's why I started there for my pre-doc internship. And I was mm-hmm. hired uh, for post-doc as well. Would you want to stay there after and like be like a full-time, like, no, it's not your vibe? Yeah. So you're you're going to start your own practice immediately after you're done with this, yeah. Basically, well, I'm going to recuperate for a few months. Okay. Yeah, I've been working like multiple jobs. Like because yeah, like when you're getting your hours, like they don't pay you as much as no. nor you're not. I've done seven thousand hours unpaid. Oh God. Unpaid. Unpaid. Yeah, you like get hustling. A, I was a an Uber driver, mm. barely making rent for years with <laughs> multiple jobs. Mm-hmm. Oh my it's God. finally all over and. Two weeks. <laughs> and you uh, you say you teach somewhere? I do. I'm a professor at California Institute of Integral Studies. Ah. Yeah. Master's in the, the doctorate program there. How's that? It's a blast. It's crazy. I didn't even finish graduation yet before I started my first class. Mm-hmm. It's quite the flip. Mm-hmm. I'm in the expert position, expected to know something, <laughs> expected to teach something. Uh, I love it, though. It's just very creative for me. Have you gotten any... It's gonna be a crazy question, but have you gotten any crazy advances from your little young students? <laughs> uh, you know what? This is a funny question. I think uh, <laughs> I can feel the fact when I mean it's power. I mean the power is attractive to people. So the moment, uh, like if a there are some people, if they encounter me as just Anthony the dude. They have a, they would have a very different experience than they encountered me as Anthony, their therapist or doctor. Anthony, I've heard about that. Their teacher. Yeah. I mean, it's a very normal, common thing. So mm-hmm. I, I have to be good with boundaries. You know, I try. Professors are not allowed to like date their students. I mean, they're grown women. You know, it's not like a, you're a high school teacher. This is true. Um, you know, I, I work at a very progressive school so they, everybody who's yeah. listening he put up the two what was it what is those what did he call the bunny ears? yeah 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 <laughs> all right so yeah so uh, that's a no that's a no my uh-huh. intention my plan and my track record is to stay professional yeah <laughs> that's good you know yeah yeah especially with everything coming out you don't want to get canceled before you even start i know right yeah. Yeah, better better man than me. (laughs) (laughs) Better man than me. So, so I have. I also have a partner, so that helps with the motivation. Oh, nice. Um, 
I had a question that's about your current job. Um, with young, what was the question? I just forgot it. Uh, so your population is young girls. And so not necessarily. young girls, young, right? No, like no. His no, the girls, and, girls, I mean, it serves like, boys and girls. Oh, it's boys and yeah, girls. It was originally okay. like, yeah. okay. Oh, this was the question you work with like young, a younger population though. Do you go down to ages like six, seven, eight, mm -hmm. nine? So do you ever use, I had a stand tray teacher after my friend died when I was younger. Do you ever use like <laughs> yes, the stand tray was, yes. method or like other, or what other methods? Wait, 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 wait. What is, what is that method? Okay. So Explain stand it. tray and I didn't really like it. I had my, you know, my therapist or whatever, just, we just did whatever we wanted. I'm like, I'm not doing that. But basically stand tray, it's like a box. It's like a sand, it's a sand tray. It's a tray filled with Oh, sand. you're saying a sand tray. Sand tray. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so then you have like little, you know, toys that you put in the sand tray and like you can build stuff. And basically the kids, because they don't always know how to articulate what's going on at home or what's going on with their lives, the idea is that they'll have this kind of make-believe world and they'll show the therapist through play mm -hmm. what's going on in their life. Do you think this is an effective method? I mean, I know for me it wasn't, but... Maybe it would be for other children, maybe like the younger ages, like four or five. Six. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a fan. Or another general way to describe it is play therapy. Play therapy. So okay. when we were in a real office, the whole office is filled with toys. The kid comes in and I just follow him. But, you know, everyone's different. But playing with a child is valuable because they're less verbal. Yeah. Right, so, and I, they kind of show you their world too, kind their of fantasies and through it's the like, worlds they create. Yeah, it's like watching them dream. Another, because dreams are also this sort of artistic creations that are yeah. metaphoric in value. I had a kid, uh, eleven-year-old girl with a lot of loss and trauma. She came in and she, I asked her, like, "Oh, you want to play in the sand tray? Maybe like make a scene in your family or something." She built the whole scene to her father's funeral instantly. And she spent a half hour burying her father and unburying her father and burying her father. Oh my God. She did that two sessions in a row. And while she was looking at me, she was so anxious and she had this huge grin on her face and she was completely disassociated. So wow. what she was expressing, she could not consciously be with in the least bit. Two years later, she she never spoke about that again. It was like a very brief moment of her in touch with something that she didn't, she didn't know how to process. Exactly. Wow. So all, all my kids I play with them in some capacity, start playing video games with kids. Well, in the middle of session, they mm -hmm. go on these little virtual explorations of these worlds. I got little kids. Oh, you, like, you, you betrayed me. You're not playing Fortnite, are you? <laughs> That's, that's just violence and violence. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, so I, I love that story. Do you have any other stories with, you know, other kids where, you know, you thought you were just playing and you were maybe even caught off guard by something they did that explained their behavior, explained their history? That's a good question. Well, it's like, it's not that the 
the play unveils some secret truth that I couldn't see before. It's mm -hmm. that it, it offers an opportunity for them to make sense of something that's like constantly mm. coming up per se. So that the, the point isn't to arrive at the truth, but is to constantly create, recreate meaning around the most painful experiences around their story and their narrative. And over time, it allows for more flexibility, more wiggle room, more growth. And an ability to kind of start a discussion, maybe, from the actions they're showing or like how they're dealing with it mm -hmm. through play shows you how they're dealing with it in real life, mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah. Zola, what uh, was the best form of uh, therapy that you experienced? Actually, I really liked my sand tray teacher. I didn't like playing with the in the sand. I didn't like that. Um, I just wanted to talk to her. You know, when I was younger, I like had no interest in school. I said I had a stomach ache every day. I went home. Mm -hmm. I, you know, there's you know there was some loss. You know, I, my best friend died. Then my godmother, who I thought of as a mother figure, I called her mommy. You know, my mom was always at work and um, something happened with my family and her and she left and I never heard from her again. And that was kind of my connection to my friend who passed away was, you know, her mother. And um, I mean, after all this happened, you know, I, yeah, I wasn't interested in school. I was thinking about death a lot. I was thinking about what happens after you die. I was trying to figure out ways of how I could communicate with my friend. So like being able to go to therapy, it wasn't like, you know, this person like discovered all my issues and, you know, figured it all out and gave me a, a solution, but it was definitely like a place of solace where I was able to do, I was able to have control back because in an institution, whether it be school or, you know, any other kind of institutionalized space, everything is kind of, you know, it's out of your control. But when you're in that room with that therapist, you're able to choose what you're going to do. It's like, oh, what are we going to do today? I want to make stuffed animals. What are you going to do today? Let's make cake. You know, what are we going to do today? Let's do this. So you kind of have more control over what you want to do. And I was able to talk to her about a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. So I liked my sand tray teacher a lot. And then I started having other therapists throughout when I was a teenager. That did not work. So, Dr. Anthony, hearing all this about Zola, you want to diagnose her on live radio right now? <laughs> Heck no. No? Heck no. Are... I only diagnose when I absolutely have to. Okay. Yeah. But in your, in your mind, your eyes, you're, you're scratching your beard, you're thinking like, damn, this girl is such and such. In your mind, you're thinking of the shit, no, aren't you? No. no? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's a beautiful story. Yeah. <laughs> He sounds like a good therapist. Yeah. <laughs> or like that's the most we can do is just offer some solace. Yeah. <laughs> and you yeah. can't uh, you can't prescribe anything, right? No. Because you're Nor a psychiatrist, I. right? Right. You have to have a special. Yeah. All right, Zola, do you have you I mean you have a whole book, do you have any more questions for the doctor before uh, we before we get I, out of here? I think that's it. Yeah, I think I asked all my questions that I wrote down, maybe in a different order, but I think that's it. Yeah. All right. So, Dr. Anthony, um, what would your advice be for someone who's like struggling, who's depressed right now because maybe they lost their job because of the COVID or a business owner who's about to lose his business because of COVID or a person 
who's like a socialite and now they're like depressed because they can't live their the lifestyle that they were living before what would you tell what would your advice be to those people who are like suffering from like a heartache and pain and they're like oh probably some are like thinking about suicide because they're like losing all their shit and they're like about to be homeless in the street or like yeah yeah well, I mean, I know every case is different, but what, what, <laughs> like, well, what, what's what's question. like what's like one thing would you say that or or some a few things that you would say like oh maybe you should maybe you should do this maybe you should do that you know? yeah yeah message and also maybe like who to call where to go like a lot of people they don't know where to start you yeah. know yeah well in terms of suicide the, the answer is easy you just Google suicide hotline and call immediately. Mm. Um, but I think of uh, think of change. Change is inevitable. Loss is inevitable. Uh, it's easy for somebody to spout out a bunch of things <laughs> about yeah. what you need. Uh, but I think change and loss and destruction are all opportunities to find meaning, uh, find something. I like to tell people, find something that's worth doing no matter what's happening to you, to the world, to anything where you just lose sight of money, of people, of everything. And it just makes your existence tolerable <laughs> for a yeah. little bit longer. So basically make a, a negative into a positive. Yeah. Or just find something passionate and suffer nobly and keep suffering and stop trying to cop out and mm. fix your life <laughs> instantly and yeah. do something meaningful. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, tell people where they can find you. Um, if you want to like give the people your Instagram or uh, like how they can get in contact with Girls Inc. Or you want to shout out your college or whatever. Shout new, out your new practice. Yeah. Maybe your new practice. Well, I don't have any of that prepared. I don't have an official. I think I'm going to wait to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You don't have that yet. World, but Yeah. My, yeah. <laughs> But, like, tell the people where they can find you or contact you in case someone wants to, like, get some advice after hearing this podcast. And Sure. Yeah. Um, they can go to California Institute of Integral Studies website. There's tons of great resources there. Mm -hmm. um, Girls Inc. of Alameda is just one of the many agencies who sees children. Uh, they can call Access if anyone in the Bay Area has insurance and they're looking for any type of service they have medical they can call that access hotline that's the number one place to find resources and uh can they find you on any social media platforms no i have yet to create a professional i'm gonna wait i'm gonna no keep linkedin not not yet that's why i couldn't find you yeah I was, I was looking yeah, him was, up was, for I gotta so be, long i gotta I'm be like, real i, I gotta be real careful like <laughs> yeah. i have to maintain only professional uh, presence virtually these days. My Instagram. Is that's a bad. That's a bad. That's a bad life. <laughs> so you can't post a picture of you getting drunk as shit in the in the bar. I will on my personal Instagram. Oh, okay. But not. That's not for public. Okay. That's like friends and family. All right. Well, like he said, uh, if you guys have any issues out there in the world and are struggling mentally, want someone to talk to, you can't call him personally, obviously, but. Please reach out, uh, Girls Inc. 
or just therapists, just Google yeah. therapist, psychology.com. Mm-hmm. I think therapy is wonderful. I think everyone would benefit from being able to speak out their heart to another human. And from the words of the great Dr. Anthony Maurice, Maurice or Maurice? Maurice? Maurice. Maurice? Yeah. In the words of the great Dr. Maurice, Anthony Maurice, uh, if you're depressed, just make a negative into a positive. <laughs> those are your words. Well, I said that. Well, yeah. Well, in the wor- in the great words of Jordan Owandi, stop trying to find meaning. Yeah. <laughs> Make a negative into a positive. Stop fucking crying. That's yeah. Those are my words, not his. But yeah, um, Zola, do you have anything? Tell the people where they can find you again. Oh, you can find me at for Instagram. You can find me at Zola Z O L A. Yelm, H-J-E-L-M. And I'm creating an online women's magazine called Stupid Girl Things. That's stupidgirlthings.com. Also, please feel free to submit your writing or, you know, if you want to be interviewed, um, you know, just submit your contact information at um, submit at stupidgirlthings.com. Um, thank you. All right. Well, this is the end of this episode, and I want to thank uh, Dr. Anthony Maurice. Is it Mar- I keep forgetting. Is it Maurice? You're doing great. It's, Maurice, that <laughs> it's works. like Maurice, but Maurice. <laughs> All right. I want to thank Dr. Anthony for coming on. Uh, thank you to Zola for coming on and co-hosting with me today. Um, yeah. And any last words? Thank you very Anybody? much for, ha- for having me. I appreciate it. These are great combos. Yeah. Thanks, Jordan. This has been great. <laughs> All right, and we are out. You...